Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Dr. Blair Errett. Uh, she is a licensed clinical psychologist and suicidologist who specializes in suicide prevention and risk assessment research and providing clinical services to veterans living with psychosis. She earned her doctoral degree from the Catholic University of America. Currently, she works at the VA San Diego Healthcare System as a staff psychologist, assistant program manager, and clinical supervisor. She serves on the board of directors of Survivors of Suicide Loss San Diego and is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego. Now let's all take a big exhale and enjoy the episode with Dr. Blair Aaron. I was just watching a seminar on, you know, some of the leading factors in suicidality and they brought up gender roles. And I had never really thought about gender roles as being having such an influence. But for men, they were saying it was about uh, men trying to live up to the ideas of their of their father or of society of what a man is and what a man does. And then at some point, usually in our 40s or 50s, where that facade of having it all together is broken, uh, that's when we see uh, a spiraling down. But then for women, they were saying it's kind of the opposite where for women, it's trying to break free of the, uh, the gender roles expected on women that um, can, you know, go lead down the road to suicidality. Have you done any research in that area or what is your research focused on? Yeah, I have not. And that's, um, that sounds actually fascinating. I would really appreciate if you would share that with me. I'd love to learn more about that because I can definitely see how gender roles can have a huge impact on our mental health, of course, but also, you know, down the line, potentially suicide. And so that is not an area I've researched, but fascinating um, and would love to learn more. My research is mostly focused on um, suicide prevention, um, most commonly um, utilizing the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality, which is CAMS, which was developed by my mentor. And I did a lot of research on CAMS um, in grad school, of course. And then as I've kind of stepped away from the grad school world, still an early career psychologist here, kind of making my way at the VA and UCSD. I have a really strong passion for individuals who are living with psychosis. Um, Clinically, that's kind of my, it's my area of expertise. I work exclusively with veterans with psychotic illnesses. And I have become fascinated by the relationship between suicide and psychosis. And I have really been looking forward to developing more of a research line that's focused on how do we understand how do we then prevent and appropriately assess suicide risk among individuals with psychosis? Um, And that led me to the development of an intervention that I very recently received grant funding for, which is really exciting and also somewhat overwhelming for an early career person who still works 40 hours a week as a clinician. (laughs) It's a lot to juggle. Um, But the intervention was developed um, with individuals living with psychosis. And it's a really beautiful intervention that I, that is really fostered in making, helping people make connections 
in the service of suicide prevention. So um, that's kind of the area that I feel really passionately about. I also have a couple of other passion projects, which are more related to acceptance and commitment therapy, um, as well as passion. So hopefully, and compassion-focused therapies. So kind of hopefully help to stoke the fire of those passions. But my main area really is in that suicide and psychosis intersection. How are you defining psychosis? Yeah, that's a great, a great question. Um, so, you know, research wise, because we love clean lines, we're talking, you know, a schizophrenia spectrum disorder diagnosis or a major mood diagnosis with psychotic features. Um, but, you know, when we think about psychosis broadly, it's really any type of break with reality um, when we're talking about different types of um, hallucinations, delusions, even negative symptoms or disorganized thinking or speech. It's important, though, I think clinically when we talk about psychosis that we're not over-pathologizing what would be seen to be very normal um, experiences um, in different cultural contexts. Um, an example of such would be that, you know, some cultures, you know, experience the revisiting of loved ones who have deceased in the form of spirits or ghosts. And they may experience that um, perceptually. And that is something that I wouldn't, I wouldn't say would be psychosis. I would say it's very culturally normative to have that type of experience. So, um, so that's kind of what, if that answers your question, it's kind of a very, you know, yes, there's a clear line um, in terms of kind of how we define it in the research world and the clinical world. But I think on a case-by-case basis, we really want to take into consideration the cultural context in which the person's experiencing that distance from reality. When you talk about psychosis with veterans, uh, specifically uh, being the focus, what is it about veterans and psychosis that is um, uh, intriguing to you? Yeah, so I think... um, the interest in in those populations probably more so for me was veterans as one population and persons living with psychosis as another, and then kind of bringing the two together, kind of combine both of those passions. And so from the veteran perspective, um, probably like many of the folks who work at the VA, um, I come from a family of veterans. Um, so my dad did not serve, but all of my uncles and both of my grandparents um, served. And it is a really, how do I phrase it? It's, it's a duty. It feels to me that this is my time to serve. They served for me. They served for us. They fought, they sacrificed, they lost uh, in the service of making sure that we were safe and protected. And this is the opportunity I feel um, really honored to have to be able to in turn give back to the men and the women who really sacrificed for for me um, before they even knew me. So veterans are really near and dear to my heart kind of in that aspect. And then persons living with psychosis, um, I have always been drawn to populations who have been underserved and marginalized. Um, And I think many people will have many different like per uh, opinions, I guess, about who is underserved and who isn't. But from my perspective, the population that is so significantly underserved are people with psychosis. Um, I think that we see that they're disproportionately affected by um, financial hardship. Um, We see that disproportionately diagnosed um, 
racial and ethnic minorities are misdiagnosed with psychosis, right? Um, we see so many disparities um, and we see the stigma. I mean, I'm so grateful that the, the hard work that all of the folks in the mental health field have been doing over the years have really helped to reduce the stigma of you know suicide, of depression, of anxiety. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I was anxious and it was like, oh my God, I, I can't tell anybody. And I was like born in 1986. Like I'm not that old, but like even just then, like just to tell somebody that you had anxiety meant that you were weak or that you couldn't handle it, that you could cut it if the stress got really intense. And now, you know, the internet and you see all these memes that are just like, you know, my anxiety, right? Like everything is just like all, everybody's putting it out there. And I think it's really amazing. But one of the things you don't still hear people talk about is like my psychosis, right? I mean, that's still such a stigmatized experience. And so I think that, um, you know, even, and I'll just share this too. I'm kind of rambling. I'm sorry, but I feel very passionately about this. But, um, but I was going to say one of the things too that I, I feel really strongly about is just the inclusion of people with psychosis and research. Um, you, I did a recent um, a literature review with some colleagues to look at how many suicide specific intervention trials are actually including people with psychosis in these trials, or are they purposely excluding them? And about two thirds of the studies purposely excluded people with psychosis. And I thought, wow, this is a population that already has elevated rates of suicide and you're not even including them in your trials to be able to see if your interventions even work for these individuals. You know, they're not that different, right? Than you and me. Um, and so I think that it's really challenging to get, I think the field on board with accepting people with psychosis, um, and also getting society on board. So I'm really drawn to that population because I just feel that they're so disproportionately marginalized. Um, and I think bringing together, you know, a passion of serving others who serve for me, along with helping those who are so incredibly underserved um, together is really the, the perfect blend of working with veterans with psychotic disorders. So you mentioned CAMS and how does CAMS fit into the, the treatment for veterans with psychotic disorders? So CAMS is a, it's an evidence-based clinical framework for treating suicide. And when I say clinical framework versus the word intervention, um, you'll see what I mean in a minute. So basically CAMS um, is, is a vehicle uh, for which to understand and to address suicidality. And so what it looks like is, let's say someone comes into your office, they're saying, you know, Leo, I'm having really, you know, a hard time thinking about suicide. It's been going on for a while. I'm really distressed by this. You would uh, utilize what's called the suicide status form, which is this beautiful comprehensive suicide risk assessment measure. It has open-ended questions and quantitative ratings. And it really just, it's so informed by theories of suicide. And it talks a, a lot about helping the person really understand their suicidality and their experience and expression and their relationship. So you collaboratively go through this assessment with them. Um, actually, when, you know, when we're in person, you, you ask permission to sit next to the person. So there's even this like collaboration, like a side-by-side -side situation. You review the form together and the person's writing, they're taking active control over what they're doing in the room. Um, they're actually physically writing on the form and you're kind of processing and talking about, you know, suicide the whole way. And just a couple of examples of the suicide status form. There's a section there for reasons for living, reasons for dying. So, you know, asking someone like, what, what do you, why do you want to die? Like what, there's gotta be some reasons you want to, right? Or else you wouldn't be thinking about it. 
And then what are your reasons for not dying? Because, you know, last I checked, you're still alive. You're still here. So why are you still here? Right. And kind of helping them go through that process. And there's also, you know, really relevant clinician tools on that suicide status form, like a, like a full risk assessment. So really understanding, you know, prior attempts, um, history of impulsivity, substance use, some of those big risk factors. And then there's a treatment planning section. And this is something where I kind of mentioned like the drivers of suicide. And so basically what you do here is the very first kind of aspect of that treatment plan is stabilization. And so a crisis plan, a stabilization plan, whatever you want to call it, a safety plan, that's always done in the first session with the person. And then the other aspects of the treatment plan are really where you get to ask the the client, like, what is driving you towards suicide? Like, what that's making you want to end your life? And there are a couple of um, areas that the person can report and they can kind of tell you, like, which one is more important. And based off of whatever it is that they say that their driver is, that's what you as the clinician with your expertise and your theoretical orientation and your knowledge of interventions, that's where you get to select the intervention that you use to really treat that driver. So an example of this might be if someone comes in and says, you know, it's just my trauma, right? Like the trauma I experience, it's my PTSD. That is what makes me want to kill myself. I don't want to live. I don't want to experience these intrusive thoughts, these nightmares, these flashbacks, right? So if you're a clinician who, who is knowledgeable and has an approach for treating PTSD, like for me, I might use cognitive processing therapy or prolonged exposure, right? Because those are what I'm trained in. I might say, okay, the driver is your trauma symptoms. So we're going to use CPT and we're going to treat the trauma, right? Because that's a driver towards suicide. And so then subsequent sessions would look like me taking a very brief assessment about where they're at when they're suicide. And then the rest of the session is us just starting. We're going to go through the whole CPT protocol. We're going to check in on suicide every single week, but we're going to utilize the intervention that I feel comfortable with that I know is going to address the driver. And of course, there's all sorts of situations in which um, maybe the primary driver is something that you're not comfortable treating, or it's not, it's something beyond your scope, right? Like if someone's like, I want to get a job, right? I don't do supported employment, right? So I could help then refer and connect them to someone who does. And I can maintain therapeutic contact with them, working on suicide-specific techniques like helping them build a hope kit, helping them do chain analyses to understand what are leading them up to their suicidal crises, right? Doing means restriction counseling, right? Helping them to get some concrete tools to help them manage and prevent a suicidal crisis. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell, kind of what you would do in a, it with CAMS and why it's more of a frame and not really an intervention. Um, there's obviously a lot more to it, but for the sake of time, that's kind of the, I guess, the thumbnail sketch of what, what CAMS really is all about. I, I love that idea of, of what's your driver. And, mm-hmm. and, and what I love also is that it sounds client-centered and that you're not telling them what their driver is or what their issue is. You're collaborating with them and letting them tell you what's going on and why. And I, I think that's important to note because it, 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 it validates the fact that we know what's bothering us. Like we, we hold the answers. We may not have the skills or techniques to help us navigate through, uh, you know, it's like if you have cancer, you have to go to a doctor to help them treat you. But 
Um, but we on some level are aware of what's bothering us and what's upsetting us and what's causing that pain. And it's about finding someone that can help you navigate through that. Is, is that make sense or? It makes perfect sense. It's, it's a saying that we often as CAMS providers will say is you're the expert on yourself, right? Like you are the expert on you, right? I'll always say to my, my clients, like I've known you for five minutes, right? I know the five minute version of you. You've known yourself your entire life, right? You know yourself way better than I do. And I went to grad school and I have a degree in clinical psychology. So I know the clinical psychology side of things. I know how to help, but you know you. And so we have to come together as partners in this, right? I can't, I can't do for you what you're coming for me if you don't come to me with who you are, right? If you don't share with me what you're experiencing and, and what you're feeling. Um, and it's a metaphor that I often use that's that is not my own original one. It's actually one that Dave uses, um, Dave Jobs for cams is just kind of like, we're going to go on a road trip together. Right. And you're going to be the driver, right? I say this to the client, you're going to be the driver. So you get to speed up, slow down, pull over, turn right, turn left, but I'm going to be in the passenger seat and I have the roadmap, right? I'm going to be the one telling you, okay, I think it'd be best if we turned left up here. I think it'd be best if we turned, you know, right over here. And together we're going to get to our destination, right? But neither one of us can do it without the other. That sounds like my relationship. I, I drive <laughs> and Michelle is over there like, make, turn, make a right, turn left, you know? So it, it's, it's... Yeah, it's good such partnership. A, <laughs> such a great <laughs> analogy. Oh my God. Uh, it's, it'll make me appreciate her uh, front seat driving uh, a little bit more. Uh, you also mentioned helping clients create a hope kit. Please mm-hmm. tell me more about that and, and feel free to pontificate loquaciously if that's a that's so, it. Perfect. <laughs> Favorite phrase of the day. Um, so yeah, a hope kit is, uh, it's an incredible tool. Um, and basically it, it's a suicide prevention strategy. And I feel really bad. I feel like I'm looking like a bad suicide researcher because I can't tell you exactly who developed this or where this came from. I know I have it in my notes somewhere. Too many citations floating in my head from other things, but, um, but it's been around for a while. And basically it's, um, it, there's many different forms of a hope kit in its original, like the OG hope kit form is a box, a shoe box, whatever type of container where you add in all of the things that give you hope and meaning in your life or represent that. So it can be photos of loved ones, uh, your first dog's collar. It could be notes you used to pass your best friend in high school, right? It, it can be anything that gives you hope, right? And meaning. And you can get very creative with this. Um, you can also incorporate things that just make you feel good, that tap into your senses, right? So help you stay grounded and mindful. So things like a lovely smelling lotion, right? Something that you can smell that feels great. You can apply and feels just luxurious and nice for a moment. Things that you can eat. I have chocolate in my hope kit and believe it or not, I'll go in there I'd be like, oh, I'm out of chocolate. I guess I'm going to go to a shoebox. Um, but, you know, I mean, having, you know, candy in there for yourself, um, things that just give you some joy. 
And you can get even more creative. You can write song lyrics on there. You can write notes to yourself to remind you to go listen to a song that that really makes you feel good or to go do something that makes you feel good. So there's such a wide range of things you can do. And as a provider, um, when we were meeting in person um, and I would work on hope kits with my clients, I always have something that I would ask permission if I could give them to put in their hope kit. So something that they get from someone else that can remind them of a relationship that's positive in their life. Um, And these are tools that are to be used. You're really meant to go to your hope kit. Whenever you're feeling, you know, increase in suicidal thinking, or you're having to have a very hopeless down day, right? A day that really it's meant to prevent you from getting into a suicidal crisis. And so oftentimes on someone's safety plan, it might be one of the first steps is like, go and engage with your hope kit, right? Go and look at it and kind of interact with it in a way. Um, And as you can imagine, we love our digital world. And so there are actually virtual hope kits, which definitely aren't, they're not the total same because you can't interact with it necessarily as much as you can in person. But we also can't take a shoebox everywhere with us. And we might experience a crisis or a pre-crisis out in the world. And so you can do miniature little hope kits that you can keep in your bag, or you can do a virtual one, which um, the VA actually has some really great apps. They have virtual hope box um, and you can upload pictures and there's activities and just different things you can do. And it's just a discrete app on your phone that you can engage in anytime. So really cool variety of ways to get really creative with that. So it's really fun. I love that. I have a friend. She started uh, kind of a, a hope kit called Find. I think it's Find Your Anchor, and mm. she mails you a hope kit, and it has different resources. I don't know what's in in the box, but uh, but I'll link it in the show notes. I can't believe I have not linked this in the show notes. Uh, that but I will incredible. link it. I want to and, check that out, and, I, and I'll send that to you also. Uh, with uh, I'll try to find that information where about the the gender roles and suicidality. Um, be awesome. you also talked about chain analysis and how that relates to, uh, uh, the, the intervention for suicidality. Talk to us about chain analysis and what does that look like and how do you use that? Yeah. So chain analysis is really uh, derived from DBT, which as we know is one of the most credible and evidence-based interventions for suicide prevention. Uh, And a chain analysis is really to kind of deconstruct and understand what are the vulnerabilities and the events that lead up to the behavior, right? And and when we think about behavior, we can think about it as either, you know, a self-harm behavior. We can think about it as any kind of behavior, but in the context of suicide, it can be a suicide attempt, a suicidal crisis, something like that. And being able to kind of um, zoom out and kind of walk yourself backwards. It's almost like you go back in time and you kind of slow things down and you think like, okay, what did I first do? What did I next do? What did I think? What did I feel? What are all of these different things that led up to the actual experience of suicidal thinking, whatever the target behavior is? And also assessing where you're at with your vulnerabilities. So like, were you particularly hungry? Were you particularly tired, right? What are some things that kind of set you up to, uh, to maybe not be at your best kind of in this situation? So um, that is really a chain analysis. And they're very, very, very uh, thick and very uh, detailed. Um, and they're utilized, like I said, mostly in DBT, but they're a phenomenal tool that you can utilize to really deconstruct any, any problematic behavior. 
I love that. And is there is there anything that we haven't talked about, Claire, in terms of uh, psychosis and su- and veterans and suicidality or uh, suicide in general that you feel like the the listeners out there need to know or, or be aware of? I guess that's what I would say for folks is if you are working with someone who has psychosis, you know, really. I think really look at the whole person. Um, far too often I see people referring out the minute that they sniff out any psychosis. And the truth is, is that if you have a rapport with someone, you know, there is a lot of support to help you work through the interventions that you are addressing with the person with psychosis. Um, I don't think I was, that's not a very clear statement, I realize, but I guess what I would say to back up, let me start that part over. What I would say is that people with psychosis are people at the end of the day. And I know I can say this, I have a lot of privilege in that I can say this because I know how to work with people with psychosis. But I would say that I think that just like suicide can pop up across diagnoses, we can see that psychosis can show up across multiple diagnoses, right? We're not just talking about schizophrenia spectrum disorders. We're also talking about mood disorders and even some personality disorders at extreme forms, um, even substance use, right? We can see psychosis. So I would really urge people to, um, to not be afraid, right? To not be afraid of it. And many suicide researchers and clinicians, you know, look at other providers who aren't as trained in suicide and they say, you can treat suicide. Don't be afraid, right? Like, We have interventions to help you. And I would want to say that I like to think about suicide and psychosis really similarly, that there's a large stigma for both and both are definitely treatable. And, you know, I just hope that people would embrace working with individuals with psychosis um, the way that they would embrace working with someone with suicide risk. So that makes sense. (laughs) You know, earlier you talked about, it absolutely makes sense, Blair. Uh, Earlier, you talked about, you know, being influenced by, uh, you know, more Eastern spiritual philosophies and uh, religions. And, you know, part of when I think about that, I think yin yang. And so when I think of psychosis, traditionally, um, it's, it has had such a negative stigma. And is there an upside to uh, having a psychotic episode? How do... I'm assuming that it's it's been placed there to protect us in some way or serve a purpose for us. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So really great question and a really good point too. So um, not to, you know, so there's lots of different ways to conceptualize the experience of, of psychosis. And, you know, you're right. I think that one of the things that I like to look at, particularly when it comes to um, delusions or hallucinations is what is kind of this, what is the function of this experience? Um, Even negative symptoms, um, you know, what is the function of kind of low motivation or low pleasure um, seeking? It often can be a protective factor, right? So you could take someone who has, let's say, a delusion that people are out to get them or hurt them in some way, right? It's kind of a persecutory delusion. You know, really, if you think about it, if I were of the belief that people were out to get me, I would, all of my safety mechanisms would be like upped, right? I'd be looking around, I'd be locking my door, I'd be making sure that I was safe. And I think we could conceptualize that is that there's something going on for this person that they don't feel safe, right? And so they need to make sure that they have a way to put up some of these safety mechanisms, right? 
you know, similar for, you know, grandiose beliefs, right? If I believe I'm a famous, you know, um, well-known person, that is going to make me feel really good, right? I might actually really enjoy that. And it's possible that the function that that's serving is to help a person who maybe doesn't really feel good, right? Kind of under the surface to actually feel good and that they're worthy and that they can be loved by others. And so obviously these are kind of general examples, um, but I do think really looking at the function of what do these symptoms serve the person and not just assuming that they're negative. Um, Because again, we're talking more about like cultural differences. You know, most commonly auditory hallucinations are experienced as negative and critical But I have worked with people who have shared with me that they hear voices and they're actually incredibly helpful. Um, I hear, I've worked with people who hear the voice of God and they feel that they have a divine connection and that to them is super meaningful and it doesn't bother them, right? They're able to go about their lives, right? Um, And they feel really connected to something bigger than themselves. And it's um, not necessarily a problem. And I think we always assume that it's going to be something detrimental or negative, but it's not always the case. And we have incredible um, peers uh, that we see as bright, shining examples of how people with psychosis can recover. I mean, Ellen Sachs is one person who's spoken, she's written, she's done TED Talk. She's a phenomenal individual um, living with schizophrenia, right? Um, Pat Deegan is another phenomenal person. And so we have a lot of examples of really... um, high achieving and impactful individuals who live with psychosis. Um, and so I think that is really inspiring in terms of recovery for those, these individuals. Uh, last two questions. I know we have to get going last quite, um, when I think about psychosis and, and especially minorities and veterans, and then I think about, uh, you know, a lot of the police arrests and some of the shootings, how, how do you see, uh, therapists being able to work in conjunction with the police department to help them uh, in these types of situations? Yeah, I that is an area that I would, if I could have like another, if I could like clone myself, that would probably be one of the areas I would send a clone of mine to because I just think that's that's incredible and we need that, right? We need to have more of that. And I will say that Um, there is a lot of room for psychologists, counselors, social workers, everyone who's aware of mental health um, to work with police officers, to train them in terms of how to approach people with mental illness, but also how to just approach people, right, of racial and ethnic minority status. I mean, I work, you know, I work with several um, diverse veterans. You know, we talk a lot about how sometimes their paranoia is actually really functional. They should be paranoid, right? If a cop is following you and you're a black man, like, yeah, like that might not be a delusion that might actually be happening, right? So kind of educating the people that I work with on kind of the the normative and protective factors that, you know, they need to, that that they may have and not to over pathologize that for themselves. But I also think to really help first responders, police officers to be able to be more sensitive to the experiences of people living with um, serious mental illness, particularly psychosis is really critical. Um, I will say in San Diego, I'm really proud to be in a community that is very aware of mental health concerns. And in fact, we have, you know, we have San Diego Police Department, but we also have what's called PERT, which is our psychiatric emergency response team. And that's a team of um, mental health providers who are often accompanied by police to go out to a call that's a mental health related issue. And we've recently just started to um, pilot test another approach to that as well. 
um, in our North County and kind of curious how that's going. But very, I think having police partner with mental health professionals when they go out to calls is another really great way at being able to address some of these, these concerns. And then last question, Blair, because uh, I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. I ask this of all my guests. Uh, before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Blair? I would say to them, firstly, I, that's understandable. I get it. You feel like you're in an impossible situation. And is it possible that we can find another way to address the problem that you're facing? A client of mine once said that suicide is a permanent solution to fix a temporary problem. And I think that understanding the gravity of the decision of ending your life is often something that I think needs to have more thought, more consideration. And there are people out there who want to help. There, there are resources. There are people who've been through it who really want to help. And you're not alone in this experience. Blair, Eric, thank you so much. How can people reach out to you, find you, work with you, pl plug whatever you want to plug? Absolutely. So you could definitely find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is Blair Errett, PhD. Um, and you can also find me through UCSD. VA doesn't do the best job at providing contact information for folks, but I think Twitter is probably the best um, way. You can always send me a message or whatnot, but I'd love to connect with you and learn more about the work you're doing and maybe collaborate in the future. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. Or if you're in another country, I have uh, contact information listed in the show notes. Sri Lanka, Budapest, wherever you are, there is someone out there who's willing to help you. If you want one-on-one -on -one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com uh, to work with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Blair. Thank you, Leo.